15, verses 1 through 10 is our reading for today, and that's on page 1035, if you'd like to follow along on, in the Bible that was, that's in front of you. Today's um, reading are two parables, and these parables are right before the parable of what you, we commonly call the parable of the prodigal son, but if you've heard before, we actually should be calling that the parable of the prodigal father and the two lost sons, because prodigal actually means lavish and generous, and that's what the father is in that parable. But the two sons are definitely lost. So this parable, these two parables that we're going to see are related to each other and to the parable of the lost son, because these are parables about lost things, and they're parables about the nature of God. But all of these parables, including the one about the lost son, is occasioned by a problem that people had with Jesus, which was his habit of having table fellowship with unsavory types, tax collectors and sinners, as it says in our text. And this is a real problem for people who are kind of interested in what Jesus is up to and kind of wondering if he really is somebody important that they should be paying attention to. And he does some pretty great things, but then he does this, and they're, they're kind of thrown into a bit of a crisis over it. Why is he doing all this great stuff, but yet he's eating with these really bad people and by eating with them, he's legitimizing them in their minds and legitimizing even their behavior, and they would never do that. And so why is Jesus doing something that we would never do? And so this points to these parables, which are subversive in a good way, I can get into that later, is that this is how Jesus operates. He creates an identity crisis for people all the time. He's always sort of challenging the foundations of who they are so that that can get deconstructed and God can be put back into God's rightful place at the center of who they are so that they can understand who they are in God and that becomes a challenge to them to go and act like God in the rest of the world. So pay attention as, as Jesus kind of creates an identity crisis for the people who are listening who don't like what he's doing. So let's go to our reading now. It's Luke 15, and I'll start with verse 1. Now the tax collectors and sinners, in the NIV we have quotes around that, the tax collectors and sinners were all gathering around to hear him. But the Pharisees and the teachers of the law muttered, This man welcomes sinners and eats with them. Then Jesus told them this parable. Suppose one of you has a hundred sheep and loses one of them. Does he not leave the ninety-nine in the open country and go after the lost sheep until he finds it? And when he finds it, he joyfully puts it on his shoulders and goes home. Then he calls his friends and neighbors together and says, Rejoice with me, I have found my lost sheep. I tell you that in the same way, there will be more rejoicing in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who do not need to repent. Or, suppose a woman has 10 silver coins and loses one. Does she not light a lamp? Sweep the house and search carefully until she finds it. And when she finds it, she calls her friends and neighbors together and says, Rejoice with me! I have found my lost coin. In the same way, I tell you, there is rejoicing in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner who repents. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word. And we ask that you would add your blessing to it. In Jesus' name, amen. 
I want to go back to this concept of table fellowship, eating with somebody in the time of Jesus, was in, in essence saying, I approve of you and you approve of me. We're equals on the honor and shame scale that they had back then, and which we actually have in our own way now in kind of convoluted ways. And this was a challenge for the people who were offended by him doing it. We're talking about the, the Pharisees, it says here, the Pharisees and the teachers of the law were muttering. The Greek word there for mutter is gogizomai, which kind of sounds like you're grumbling. You know, they were grumbling. It's one of those onomatopoetic words in Greek. I love it. And they were grumbling because he was doing this. And this is their challenge because they were actually paying attention to Jesus. They were watching him very carefully. It's not like they didn't care what he did. They cared a lot what he did because he was doing some things that were checking some boxes for them that were kind of important boxes to check. He taught well. Nobody could stump him. You know, people try to sort of pepper him with these legalistic questions, and he always had a good answer. So they're like, this guy's pretty smart. He certainly knows the Old Testament. Guess they didn't know that he also, like, authored part of it, you know, like, the, but they didn't know. They didn't know. Um, and they saw some things they really, really liked. He had power over the demonic. He had the ability to tell evil spirits to depart and go and, and leave people. And that's, that's pretty good. That shows this great degree of power. He had power over illness. He even had power over death. He could bring some people back from the dead. Um, and he had people following him. And they were also conscious of that because they wanted people to follow them. Somebody else comes along and there's all these people following him. There's either a little bit of Jealousy there, or there's some real interest, like, well, maybe, you know, check, 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 check. He might be somebody that we really need to pay attention to. And then he sits at a table with tax collectors who are not loved, with prostitutes who are not thought well of at all, okay? And by sitting with them and eating with them, he's conferring on them some kind of honor that, that happens when you share a table with somebody in that world. And so he wasn't keeping track of who he was hanging out with. Um, and was he approving of their behavior, I think, is the question, right? Now, I want to talk a little bit about some of the language that he uses. And so he tells these parables as an answer. Parables are always kind of an indirect answer to a question. Why is he doing this? Well, let me tell you a story, once upon a time. So instead of Jesus saying, yes, I'm eating with them because I love them and I care about them, and in God's eyes, they're incredibly valuable. He doesn't do that because that's too easy. That's too easy for them to just wave off. But if he tells them a parable, he gets them thinking, right? This is what parables do. They kind of, they kind of force us into some contemplation, which is a good thing. And so he starts to tell a parable, but I want to point out one thing that is more interesting to me now than it has been before, because we've preached on this parable before. And every time we preach on a passage, we find something new. And so uh, I've maybe said this before, every Bible passage has at least seven good sermons in it. I mean, because there's always something new in there. The trick is not to preach them all at the same time, because then the you know, whoever's asleep will be even more asleep, and the rest of you will be like, that was a lot. That was kind of too much. So one thing that came out to me is Jesus' use of language. And if you take a look at verse 3, 
where he says, suppose not someone, right? Not suppose some guy, somebody else. Suppose one of you has a hundred sheep, okay? Now this is more this is more interesting than it appears at first because shepherds are not also not good people in this time. They are not well thought of. Uh, they're generally thought to be corrupt. They they thought to be as, as thieves. They're unclean because they're around animals all the time. So you would really you would cross the road to not be on the same sidewalk as them. There's numerous attestations in the rabbinical literature of this time that shepherds are just not good people and you don't hang around with them. Um, and so, although, and this is just a wrinkle, in the Old Testament, God is likened to a shepherd at times. And so there's even a conflict within that culture is that God as a shepherd is a good thing, but regular people shepherds, they are not good. Okay. So, in essence, imagine that the parable is really starting like this. Jesus says, imagine that you are scum. That's how this one starts. Do you get that? Imagine that you are scum. Suppose one of you has a hundred sheep. Suppose you are a shepherd. He's saying this to people who don't like shepherds. Okay, so already Jesus is, is not, he's not pulling any punches. He's, he's not nice you know, in, in those terms, to people. He's very loving to people, but he's not always nice to them. He doesn't always uh, tread lightly around their feelings. Praise God that Jesus is like this. And one thing is that, that we find in Jesus that is he's always doing the right thing. He's always doing the healthy thing in these social situations. So there's times when he has to speak rather forcefully, and he He's not that concerned that people will be offended by it because the truth of something is far more important than somebody else's feelings. Yet he still loves them, and he finds a way to do this in a loving way. So he says, imagine that you are scum. And he gets a reaction out of them. His goal is in this parable, as like all these other things, is to put his listeners into a crisis of identity. Already he's starting. Imagine that you are something that you would never imagine that you could be. Put yourselves in the feet, in the shoes, the sandals of this shepherd who has lost one sheep and leaves the 99 and goes and looks for the one that's lost. Because the crisis of identity he wants them to develop is really a crisis of, of knowing who God is and what God is like. Because if you know who God is and what God is like, then you know who you are and you know what you are like. And so he's challenging their identity by challenging them, their conception about God. God goes looking for one lost sheep and leaves the 99 out in the open country. So let's talk about that real quick because maybe already you're having some kind of reservations about this parable, as many people have, because sort of where is the proportionality of that? There was a philosophical movement, right, in the... 19th century called utilitarianism, right? This idea that the best, the best for the whole is that 
the best for the most people. The best social outcomes for the most people is what we should pursue. Jesus is not being a utilitarian right now, or at least this shepherd isn't being a utilitarian right now. He's leaving 99 in the open country, and he's going to look for one. It's out of proportion. And I want to talk just a little bit about what we do with parables, because um, two things. We assign roles in parables, which is good generally, but we have to hold on a little loosely. And the other is that sometimes we push parables a little bit too hard, a little harder than they need to be pushed. So first, let's go to the roles. It's not too far a stretch to say that the, the shepherd is not directly like, is not directly God, but it, the, the shepherd's behavior is an indication of what God is like. And the outcome of what the shepherd does is similar to the outcome of what happens in heaven amongst the angels when a lost sinner is found and comes back into the fold. And so there's, a, there's definitely a parallel going on here. Is the shepherd God? Is the shepherd Jesus? Okay, yeah, sure, it's all right. Yes, you can say so, you know, but you don't have to. You can just say that his behavior is an indication of what God's behavior is like. But then you get to the 99, and this is a challenge. Who are these 99 people? Or, or sheep, if these people are, if these sheep are like people, that's a good bet, right? The sheep are kind of like people. Are there really 99 people, 99% of the world that is righteous and doesn't need to repent? No, no, okay, got that? No, but so don't, but don't let that hang you up that this parable is kind of goofed up. That's not the point, it's all about a comparison. You've got these 99 people that don't need any help. They, they do need help, but in the eyes of the shepherd, they don't need any help. All he cares about is finding the one lost, and it's about the nature of this shepherd, about the nature of God. So this would be hyperbolic speech, a bit of an exaggeration. There are not 99 righteous people. There are not 99 unlost sheep. They're all really lost. All sheep are lost. All people are lost and sinners and scum. Imagine that you're scum. You are. Please don't take offense. This is also hyperbolic speech, but it's the way Jesus is talking to the Pharisees and the teachers of the law. So is it, but isn't it a problem that he would leave 99 and go for one? Because what if the 99 get lost, right? Or eaten, or something like that. And so actually some commentators have gotten hung up on this and they'd say, you know, they'll, they'll dig back into the history and say, well, with a flock that big back then, that was more than one shepherd could handle. And so there would have been like, sort of a junior shepherd helping that shepherd out. And he could have left the 99 with the junior shepherd safely and then gone and looked. Don't, don't bother with that. That's, not, that's pushing the parable. See, see what I'm saying? You can push the parable a little too far. That's not the point of the parable. The parable isn't about the intricacies of losing one or 99. The parable is about the nature of God that goes looking for the lost and finds it and rejoices when it's found. So that's kind of the challenge of parables, is to, t is to let them work and not to dissect them so much that they lose their power. They have power in their comparisons. They have power in that ability to make us think. And this parable is an answer to a question. Why is he eating with them? And the parable says it's not just tax collectors and sinners at the table with Jesus who are lost, and will be found, but that everybody listening to this is lost. The question itself, why is he doing this, 
shows that the people asking it are also lost. This is important. He's telling a parable about the shepherd. He's telling a parable about the tax collectors and sinners seated at the table with him. But he's also telling the parable about the people asking the question. And when they figure things out, they, they often, even elsewhere in the scripture it says, they figured out, not this parable, but other parables, they figured out that he was telling this parable about them. And they conspired with each other on how they could kill him. They didn't like it. It's very interesting. So Jesus is always doing that. He's creating a crisis of identity for everyone. For the sinners who know their sinners and the sinners who don't know their sinners. And for everybody who doesn't really understand what God is like. So what is God like? These kids are so good. Don't you love the children's sermon? You know, I, we could just stop the church service there and go home because, you know, I just take my work and trundle on off because you don't need it. But this is what it is. This is the nature of God. He loves each and every person in this world so much that there is no sacrifice he would not make to bring them safely back to him. That is the nature of God. He loves each person in this world so much that there is no sacrifice he would not make to bring them safely back to him. And that means you. And it means me. And you know what? It means that God sees your mistake. He sees where you've wandered off. He sees your anger. He sees your pain. He sees the relationships you've damaged. He's seen the people who have hurt you, the people who have really hurt you, the people you have hurt, the people who you have really hurt. He's seen the lies and the theft and the greed and the appetite for things that do not satisfy. God sees everything. We can't act like he doesn't. He sees it all, and yet he still goes looking for you, and nothing will stop him. That's who God is. That's who our God is. That's what Jesus is saying. So we actually need a crisis of identity. This is something we should welcome into our lives. Because if that's who God is, then who are we? We need to tear down who we think we are and rebuild it in the image of God. Who are we to say there's no room at the table? There's a million ways that we could do this without saying exactly those words. There's not room at the table for, for them, you know. Uh, we, who are we to say we would never associate with such a person? And I, I'll give you an example. We have a totally polarized political life in our country, and I suppose we always have. I don't actually think it's any different than it's ever been. You should read the newspapers from 1776. They were mean to each other. You know, they, it just was mean. It's always been this way. It's, it's a fact of life. It's better to accept what's the reality than try to act like it's not there. So, you know, you may know someone, I don't know, you may know of someone who may have voted differently than you in a recent election. Do you know? If you don't, maybe you need to expand your circle a little bit. But maybe not. I mean, you could just be in your bubble. That's fine. It's, it's really up to you. But you may know somebody who has voted differently than you, you may have different heroes on the political spectrum than the person sitting next to you. That's fine. You know what? I don't care about your political views. I don't care. I do care about them because they're kind of who you are, and I care about you, and I love you. But I don't care them about them because your political views will not make me love you any less. No way. 
I hope you can say that to each other. I hope we can all say that to each other. But I honestly feel that way. And, and some of it matters a little more to us than maybe it should. But that's just a prophetic word that let it go by if it doesn't affect you. Can you share a table with someone from the opposite side of the political aisle? Can you do that? That's just one example. We're, we're talking about politics here. We could be talking about somebody else, some other thing. Could you share the table with somebody who's really hurt you? Could you share the table with somebody who has bad manners? You know, one of the great stretching moments for me in, as a youth pastor, and this is long ago, was there was a young man who was in the youth group, and he had all sorts of problems at home, and so that was, that was where I kind of learned that I had to just give him grace. But um, I could not stand the way he ate. I just, he, I, I took, I would take him to meals and we'd go to Burger King and he would just pour ketchup all over his hamburger and then he would basically cram it into his face like with, with violence, you know. And I was like, oh, I am not hungry anymore. And, and I was troubled and then God said, you got to love this kid. Nobody else does. It doesn't matter how He's just a kid and he's hungry, you know? Let it go. It's not that important. You can eat with him. It's not the end of the world. And um, that was a great growing moment. Like, I'm not, a, I'm not the hero here. Let me, I mean, I, he still annoyed me in many, many ways. And I, I, I had to just go, you know, I love him. I love him. Nobody else does, it seems. You know, except for his mom. His mom was, was good at that. That was good. Sister, too. So... Jesus really does hope that we will have a crisis of identity to challenge our sense of who is in and who is out, who belongs at the table, and that we would say we barely belong at the table because we're so lost. But praise God, we've been welcomed to the table by the shepherd. We are the ones who were really lost and who really needed to be found. So I want to ask you to imagine that you are scum. Imagine. And that's not too hard for some people. I, I, I remember a man came to the church I was pastoring in Iowa, and he actually didn't come in the church. It was for a wedding, and he was kind of sitting outside, and I went and talked to him, and he said, I can't go in there. He said, if I walked in that church, I'd get hit by lightning because of all the terrible things I've done. You have no idea, pastor. And I said, yeah, I, I have no idea. I, I don't know. I'd be glad to hear it. But I don't think that's true. I think you can walk in here and the doors are open. You're welcome here anytime. Um, because despite what you may think, and I'm talking about this church and that church and any church, is that this is a place of very broken and very sinful people, but who nonetheless have been found by the shepherd are now safe in the arms of the Savior. That's the only difference. They're just as sinful they're just as scummy. They're just as lost as anyone else in this world. But the difference is that the shepherd has found them and gathered them to himself, and there's rejoicing in heaven. You know, um, if I don't think too highly of myself, it's a lot easier to make room at the table for everyone else. Praise God. So maybe that's my challenge for myself, is to not think too highly of myself. We have a great tradition in Christianity, of when we really mean it, to actually think this way. Think of our most famous hymn, Amazing Grace, How Sweet the Sound, That Saved a Wretch 
by doing. That's the true core of the gospel right there. What Adele just read, and we should all have this memorized, 1 Timothy 1.15. In fact, Paul even says you should memorize this. So I'm telling you what Paul's telling you is you should memorize this. 1 Timothy 1.15, she just read it. Here is a trustworthy saying that deserves full acceptance, the gospel in a nutshell. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the worst. Yeah, that's true. I am the worst. Paul's speaking, but we could all be saying this. This is the true crisis of identity that God wants us to have. Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners, to save one out of nine, 99 of who I am the worst. I'm going to ask you to try some imagination with me. We have time. This won't take long, maybe three minutes. Close your eyes. Go ahead, close your eyes. Imagine that you're a sheep. You love grass. You love being with the other sheep in the flock, frolicking in the hills. The shepherd is always there to keep you safe. You're out in the wilderness. The flock is around you. You can hear them. You can sense that they're next to you. But for a moment, you notice that there's a little valley just off to the side there, and something distracts you about it. Something gets your attention. There's a noise. There's a smell. There's something that triggers your appetites. And so you go in for a look. You go into that little valley, and you, you lose track of time and place. And you spend time in that valley and you enjoy all the distractions and then temptations of this little valley. And truly there are some things in there that seem like they could give you everything that you think you want. And eventually you turn around and the flock has moved on. There's not a sound, not a bell, not a sight not a smell, and it's, now it's getting dark, and it's so dark that you, you can't even find the way back out of this valley again. And you begin to hear the howl of wild animals getting ready for their hunt, and so you wisely go and hide under a rock, and you make yourself as small as possible and wonder, how did you ever get into this place? And some time passes, and it gets darker. And just when it seems like the night is the darkest, you hear a familiar sound. It's the voice of the shepherd calling your name, you, by your own name. And you run out to see him, and you know he'll protect you. But you're exhausted at this point, and so he puts you on his strong shoulders that his shoulders seem like they could carry the whole weight of the world. And he's risking himself to take you back because... His arms are holding you up tight, and he's defenseless against the wild animals. He can't defend himself as he's walking back with you. But he brings you home back to the flock where you belong. And there's great celebration. Go ahead and open your eyes. This is who God is. He seeks for the lost, and he rejoices when they're found. And he simply asks us to do the same. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you again for your word. Father, create in us a crisis of identity. Challenge us in who we are. Make us more like you. In Jesus' name, amen.